I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. As the future direction of the Supreme Court is debated, our guest this episode is Ilya Shapiro, director of the Cato Institute's Constitutional Studies Center. His timely new book is Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. On this program, you'll hear from Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson. Her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, proposes that America's racial strife originates from a long-standing invisible caste system, which assigns people status in our society based on their race. Isabel Wilkerson, your new book is entitled Cast. What's its main thesis? The main thesis is that uh, we in in our country, um, it's as if we live in an old house and we often cannot see the uh, pillars and the beams and the structure beneath it. Uh, We can often uh, focus in on what we can see, what we think we can see, but we often may not be focusing on the structure underneath. And so we have inherited a, a hierarchy that extends back to uh, before the country was founded, back to the time of enslavement. And we live even in this day with the consequences of that original hierarchy, a graded ranking of human value uh, in which people at the very beginning were put into, assigned to categories, not of their own making, but that were part of the service of creating uh, what would ultimately become the United States and that we live with the after effects to this day. And so the language that I'm using is language that we're not often accustomed to thinking of our country Uh, when we think of of the United States, Uh, but the word caste, language that we often apply to to other civilizations, but which are actually human creations that uh, that do give us a way of looking at ourselves through a different lens. You write in the acknowledgments, this is a book I did not seek to write, but that I had to write in the era in which we find ourselves. Can you tell me more about that? Well, you know, I, uh, the idea of the use of the term caste grew out of uh, the first book that I wrote, The Warmth of Other Sons, um, in which I was writing about the outmigration of six million African Americans fleeing the Jim Crow South. And in writing that, I came to re- realize uh, through my research that I was writing not about people just uh, leaving uh, one place for another, but they were actually defecting a caste system. So I used the word caste to describe. Uh, the lives and the experiences of really anyone living in the Jim Crow South. And in doing so, uh, I realized that uh, when I went out and speak, spoke about the book, I, I would find that, that readers uh, really truly understood it when they could see what people were living uh, under in the Jim Crow South for much of the, the 20th century. Uh, and so uh, it was a place where people, it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers again in Birmingham. So it was after writing that book and then uh, being uh, going out and talking about that book that I, that I then um, began to think about the idea of caste, a word that I was using all the time when I spoke uh, to any audience about it. But then there were such cases as, as Trayvon Martin. Um, Trayvon Martin, a young man in Florida who was who was killed as he was uh, coming back from the store uh, wearing a hoodie. Um, he was seen as someone who did not fit uh, in the place where he was in that subdivision, that suburban subdivision in, in Florida. He was seen as suspicious on the basis of merely of what he looked like. And so I wrote, uh, I wrote actually about that. I made the connection then about caste, about how this enduring, these uh, enduring assignments and assumptions about 
who people are, who where people belong, who is accepted and viewed as worthy in one space or another. And so I actually wrote wrote a piece uh, for the Times, an op-ed piece, uh, connecting cast to that experience, and then have been thinking about that. Um, ever since. We have seen since the time of, of Trayvon Martin, we have seen basically a metronome of names of people who have been uh, who have been uh, unarmed people killed at the hands of police or of, you know, of, of homegrown um, uh, of professed vigilantes, you might say, who have who have uh, have taken upon themselves uh, to to take the lives of people who are unarmed people who just happen to be in spaces where they were not expected to be. Uh, and so this became the, the an era that seemed to to suggest that there was a way of looking at what we were going through through a different lens. You write that the idea of caste was still germinating in 2017, and then two conferences that you attended, one at UMass Amherst and another in London, really helped the ideas coalesce for you. Can you tell me more about that? Well, um, the case uh, in uh, in Amherst, uh, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, was where I was invited to, to give uh, a keynote uh, about caste and the intersection between caste and race and that was as a result of the research that I was doing people began to hear that this you know woman had uh, an Amer African American woman uh, was researching this topic I was in had been in India and then uh, uh, they heard about it and they invited me to this conference and um, it was there uh, at the University of Ma Massachusetts Amherst that I uh, began to uh, you know, test out some of the uh, the thinking that I had uh, come to recognize through, as a result of the research. And, you know, starting with The Warmth of the Suns, I mean, they, they were quite fascinated by the, the idea that I'd written a book about the African-American experience in the South without really using the word racism. That's a word that d does not appear in The Warmth of the Suns, although many people might assume that it does, but it doesn't. The word I use is caste. And so it was there that I began to get a chance to um, explore um, and to share um, the, the views that I'd come to recognize, um, not only as someone who had researched it, but also was, was experiencing it as well, so that all of these things came to coalesce um, in, in that space. And as I talked about it, it turned out that I felt such a deep connection to people uh, who were, who were uh, Dalits, meaning people who had been formerly known as untouchables. And I found that the conversations um, came with such recognition of shared experiences without, you know, across time, across oceans, across you know, continents, that there was this shared experience. And so those were some of the uh, some of the, the the experiences that led to my feeling that this actually was uh, something that needed to to be written. Well, we're talking about the evolution of your, um, your thinking on these ideas from warmth. Warmth of Other Suns is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year and is on the bestseller list. And I'm wondering what your thought is as an author about its enduring popularity. What do you think the secret sauce is for that book? <laughs> well, I think that people always uh, feel drawn to a story. Um, the Warmth of the Suns is narrative nonfiction, and it tells this, you know, much larger uh, tableau uh, about a major phenomenon in our country's history that does not get a, as much attention as it should. You know, this time period between 
um, essentially the you know the end of Reconstruction to the Civil Rights Movement. That era kind of doesn't get as much attention as it might otherwise, and so this was a way for people to understand it. The beauty of narrative nonfiction, and I think that The Warmth of the Suns reflects that, is that it's the closest that a person will get, that a reader will get, to actually being another person. So I spent 15 years on that book. Uh, you, know, you know, getting to know uh, three people very, very deeply. Uh, first finding them, it was a, the audition for the, for the role of being in the, in the book, you might say, and then getting to know them very deeply and then being able to share their experiences from a, a well of deep understanding because they'd shared so much with me and then allowing the reader to be able to go along the journey with them. And in going along on that journey, you get a chance to experience what they experienced, to see how and why they made the decisions that they did and the uh, the ways that a human being responds to the phenomenon and the circumstances that they might be born into and that they have to make this, you know, a pivotal decision. And these are all deeply human circumstances any human being um you know could can i can identify with the yearning to be free the yearning to break from uh from the restrictions that they might have been born into and and then the the goals the hopes and dreams that they might carry as they make their way across you know um um, the the country and you know it's a deeply uh universal story um you know there's someone in all of our backgrounds no matter where we might have come from who had to experience uh, some type of migration just for us to exist. And so I think um, that that is what um, speaks to people. Um, but as I said, narrative nonfiction allows, it's the closest that we might get to being another person. We know that, that fiction allows us to, uh, to, have, to build empathy as we get drawn into the characters that we're learning about uh, and experiencing that unfold in the, 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 uh, the uh, story of a, of a novel. But in narrative nonfiction, we, we seek to, uh, to uh, allow the reader to experience that, uh, that journey that comes from, uh, from, that we often associate with fiction, but it's true, it's real, it's, these are factual, verifiable facts of real people who actually existed. So this gives people the, you know, the best chance that they ever will get, I think, to actually be another person, to be inside the hearts and the minds and the spirits, the dreams, the wishes, hopes, the, the, the heartbreaks and setbacks that a person might go through. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people are drawn to it. I'll say one other thing, and that is that that, um, that the experiences of people who were survivors of Jim Crow and were part of the Great Migration, and even those who stayed or whether they left, they uh, their experiences are are become deeply familiar to those of us who may be observing uh, what is going on now with uh, when we see what's happened with um, George Floyd and many others. You know, a lot of people look at the warmth of the suns as history until they turn on the news. So there's a combination of the story and the enduring truths that we can see unfolding before us even in our current day. What would you, how would you describe the style of cast? It's, it's, an, it's very different in, in how you've approached it as a writer. I ended up pulling together many pieces, uh, having to uh, explore and research uh, into many uh, disciplines, uh, uh, history, of course, but also philosophy, uh, sociology, anthropology, uh, um, all kinds of, of uh, disciplines in order to better understand uh, a phenomenon that is 
is you know is very very old an ancient ancient phenomenon but one that can um, surface in other cultures that where we might not be looking for it or might not be expecting it to be and so i would view this as a quilt where i was pulling from from many many different disciplines many many different um uh uh, uh previously written works many many different ways of of looking at it, you know, references to, uh, you know, to the Old Testament, the laws of Manu, uh, references to uh, what philosophers have said, references to Einstein, I and mean, just pulling all of this together in order to create a quilt that would, together, I would hope, be able to give us a, another way of looking at ourselves. How did you decide on the subtitle, The Origins <laughs> of Our Miscontents? <laughs> The subtitle was uh, actually the the working title for most of the time I was working on it. It was the immediate um, purpose and goal of the work. And that was to understand what was unfolding uh, around us in, you know, in the in the in the recent years to understand what was unfolding around us and to try to understand how and why and where this had begun, how to better understand where we happen to be. So the origins of our discontents is 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 really truly the, the goal and the purpose of trying to get underneath uh, the, the upheavals and the divisions and the tensions that we're living with now. Well, the, the word cast, of course, is something that you're, you're wanting readers to change their lexicon and thinking about our society, but other words that you write about you also want to have us think about. One of them is race itself um, and racism, which you write is one of the most contentious and misunderstoods in American words, excuse me, in American culture. What are you saying there? Well, I'm saying that um, racism is a word that is a phenomenon that is, has, is real and has affected our country for, uh, for as long as there has been a country. There's no question about that. Uh, what I'm saying, however, is that that word is that the word um, has become so contentious that a lot of I think a lot of everyday people don't may not even realize that there are actually formal uh, you know formal um, sociological definitions that scholars there are many many scholars who have you know who have created life's work um, to understand this phenomenon. But because it has had so many different meanings to so many different people. It's also in some ways a misunderstood term. It's it's come to be confu- confused or conflated with just some, hating someone or um, prejudice. There are all of these words that get um, pulled together and can obscure racism itself. Um, what this book is saying and what I'm uh, observing here, um, re- emerging from the research that I've done, is that underneath all of that is the infrastructure of the divisions to begin with, meaning the originating hierarchy, the graded ranking of, of human value that, that, you know, that uh, is a, has been assigned to people based upon where they were born, where, what, what uh, group they were born to, and where that group has been positioned in, in uh, the hierarchy from the time, uh, from even before the time that the country was founded, going back to colonial Virginia. And so because those hierarchies have been with us all of this time, what I am uh, doing is shedding a light on, uh, holding up an x-ray of the country so that we can see what is underneath uh, these divisions, what is underneath what we call racism, um, that there is this infrastructure of division that that uh, predates actually, um, you know, race as a, as a concept. Race as a concept is a fairly new one in human history, dating back only uh, four or 500 years. 
you know, before uh, before there was this uh, coming together of people, either by choice or by force, onto this land, people did not, human beings did not think of themselves in terms of what we now call race. Uh, they were, you know, they were Irish or they were Polish or they were uh, uh, they were Lithuanian or they were uh, they were uh, from the area now known as Senegal or from Gambia, wherever they might have been, but they were not identified primarily on the basis of what they look like. If you were in uh, Europe, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, um, you know, six or seven hundred years ago, you would not have needed to identify yourself on the basis of your skin color. You were surrounded by people who look like you. That would not have been the identifying characteristic. It's only when people have um, are brought together, either again by choice or by uh, by will, um, to and, and are you know in what we now know as the uh, the country, the United States, um, the New World. Do, do these external characteristics that would have been neutral or had very little meaning. Uh, before, then have meaning, um, or accorded meaning, you might say, here, um, once people came together. So this was a creation. We often hear that race is called a social construct. And this is a way of understanding how it became a social construct, um, how this was, in some ways, a, an arbitrary characteristic to use to rank people in a hierarchy that re that was requiring that there be people to do the work to build what was you know then a colony and into a country and there needed to be uh the, the colonists felt that there needed to be people to do that of course the you know the great tragedy is we all is, is that the the people who were here the indigenous people whose land this was were driven off the land and uh and their numbers decimated and then they, they, the uh, the colonists brought in Africans to uh, to be enslaved to build uh, to build this country, and um, in doing so, thus created a caste system. Ultimately, what what what, it, what, what was really a bipolar caste system with the colonists um, originating from uh, from Britain being on top, and the uh, the uh, 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 African Africans who were brought to be enslaved, put on the bottom, assigned to the bottom by definition, and then the uh, the indigenous people excluded and uh, and made outcasts in their own land. And this is this is essentially the framework for how the country was the hierarchy that we have lived with um, all of these uh, ensuing uh, centuries. You write in Cass that the human impulse to create hierarchies runs across societies and cultures. What did you learn in your research about the genesis of that human instinct? Well, I, in the process of working on it, I, I came uh, to compile eight uh, characteristics, eight what I call pillars of caste, and they are the um, the common threads, the uh, points of intersection in any uh, hierarchy, hierarchy uh, that I saw uh, occurring uh, wh wherever I happened to be looking. And um, I would say that, you know, one of the originating um, characteristics, uh, which, is, which is just pillar number one, would be the role of religion uh, finding or the laws of nature, the ways that a culture uh, must find or chooses to find uh, justification, often justification um, from the laws of nature or from some perceived received, received wisdom from uh, from on high to justify um, the uh, 
the the degradation or the the uh, the uh, positioning, putting people beneath uh, uh, your your group. Um, there's this desire to find justification for it because these things actually are arbitrary. I mean, one of the goals of this is to remind ourselves of how arbitrary and artificial these divisions actually are. But to overcome those, uh, the, the recognition, the natural recognition that one would have that these are arbitrary and artificial, um, a, a culture needs to have some justification. And so that was one of the things that I found um, and, and made reference to that as the first pillar because that is the essential, um, the essential framework for, move to, for convincing entire groups of people that they are above others and that others are beneath them. And, that, and then from that flows all of the uh, other uh, characteristics and mechanisms that are then used to keep other groups in a particular position so that the group that deems itself above can maintain the resources and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the primacy that they, they have been told or that they have come to believe are their birthright. We, um, I asked our producer to put those eight characteristics onto a, eight pillars, as you call them, onto a, a graphic that we can show to our audience. But the question I have is, as we look at them, do all cast share all of these characteristics? Are they all necessary to form a cast? Uh, it's it's my contention that that that's the case. I mean, I would say that in order to um, I did a tremendous amount of work in order to be able to make the case that ours actually, you know, has underneath it, uh, its underpinnings that there's this infrastructure of caste. And in order to be able to make that case, I identified these eight pillars, which uh, are present in any such hierarchy. They are present. And uh, I would say that um, sadly, they are present because some of them are, are, are very, very difficult to, to uh, accept in many ways. In order to understand uh, how castes function, your, your book t research took you two places, India and Germany. Uh, castes exist in other societies. How did you decide to zero in and focus on those two places? Well, originally I was really focusing, first of all, the, the, the entire the entire book is is really about us. It's really about uh, it's about America. It's about our country and better understanding our country. So, in order to better understand our country and these uh, you know long standing this this long shadow under which we still live, why is this still happening? Why are the things that we're seeing still happening? And so that was the originating goal was to better understand ourselves by looking at other places that had experienced um, what we just, what I'm describing here as caste. And so of course the, the first place that you would, would ever think of would be, um, you know, Southeast Asia and particularly, uh, uh, particularly India. So that was, um, that was the uh, original goal was to really try to understand better um, how uh, caste uh, worked, originated there um, and, how and to understand the framework for the caste system there historically. Um, but uh, in the process of working on this, um, Charlottesville happened. And after Charlottesville, I mean, we all could see 
um, the symbolism of the United States, the Confederacy, and, uh, and of Nazi Germany in the regalia and the symbolism uh, that the protesters used, brought together themselves as they were protesting the potential removal of the statue of Robert E. Lee. And you know, we saw um, the, you know, the tiki torches and um, the, the symbolism of another culture and another time um, uh, reaching over to, uh, to Nazi Germany in a way that um, we might not have seen um, before um, in, in, in such a big way in, you know, in recent times. So it was there uh, that Charlottesville where the protesters brought these symbolisms together. And it was then that I began to uh, you know, think to myself about what is it that Germany had been doing um, in the intervening time? What, what is it about Germany that, these, that the people and the protesters would see themselves in? Um, that uh, it's the, what we saw in Charlottesville in some ways was, uh, were questions of memory, questions of history. How do we remember our history? How have we absorbed our history? We're not on the same page about what our history uh, has been. And so that's what uh, set me on a course to looking at Germany and to the 12-year concentrated, essentially, creation of, of a caste system there had, that, that the Nazis uh, uh, you know, did during that time. Um, obviously, the, you know, the most terrifying, horrific uh, crime against humanity that uh, that it would that ultimately it would culminate, and I, I wanted to understand how did the Germans, uh, how were they working through that history? How were they uh, reconciling that history? How were they atoning for that history? So my initial goal was to understand how they were dealing with history, because clearly we were dealing with history very very differently. But uh, after I began to look into the history of how they were and how they were dealing with it, I then came to realize and to discover things that I had no idea just were absolutely stunning. I mean, one of them was that, uh, that, that it turns out that German eugenicists were turning to consulting with and in dialogue with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the Third Reich. I ha had no idea uh, of that. It turned out that uh, American eugenicists were writing books that were huge sellers, big, big sellers in, in Germany, very popular among uh, the Nazis, and the Nazis were actually using them as, in, as, as part of their textbooks, which was just stunning and shocking to me. Now, the, the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate. They absolutely needed no one to teach them how to hate. But it turns out that the Nazis actually sent researchers to the United States to study exactly how the, the United States had subjugated African-Americans. Uh, the Nazis sent uh, researchers to study the miscegenation laws, the anti-miscegenation laws that, uh, that forbid, uh, forbade uh, marriage across racial lines in the United States. It turned out that there were 41 of the United States that at some point or other barred uh, uh, marriage across racial lines, not just black and white, but also people of Asian descent from marrying from uh, white uh, Americans. So there was, the, the, the Nazis sent uh, researchers to study that. They sent researchers to study how uh, the United States had segregated the, the Jim Crow laws of segregation in uh, public facilities. They, they looked for all the ways that they had done that. They studied the laws of the United States uh, and Jim Crow segregation as they were, and they went back to debate those laws as they were uh, forming what would ultimately become the Nuremberg Laws. 
that was stunning uh, to me. I had no idea, and that is how I ended up uh, the, the ended up focusing in on these three places because they all spoke to this 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 um, this idea of hierarchy and creating uh, these artificial boundaries and these artificial rankings that would have such horrific uh, end points. Um, particularly for for the what the Nazis did, obviously. Well, yeah. To that point, uh, I'm sure many readers will be surprised, shocked to learn about the parallels between the Jim Crow South and uh, the the development of, of a Nazi code. But um, of course, the Nazis' ultimate goal was the elimination of populations. So, how far does the parallel actually go when thinking about American society? Well, you remember the uh, the subtitle of the book, and and my uh, goal with this book is the origins of our discontents with an emphasis on the origins and the uh the focus uh for what i'm looking at is where are the originate originating uh points of intersection and what can we learn from them and uh the focus when it comes to the origins uh, for Nazi Germany would be the years of the, the 1920s interaction with the eugenicists, both in, in Britain and in the United States, the, 19, the early 1930s as they were forming a government um, and uh, creating. I mean, the interesting thing is that the, 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 the point to your point is that uh, the 12 year reign um, can be instructive for all of us because it started out um, in, a, in such a way as to begin to uh, look for ways of legitimacy by looking at the United States. That's one of the things that they were looking at. But also the fact that they took a group of people who were among the most successful and accomplished people in, the con- in these countries and then converted them into an, uh, to uh, a, a subordinated caste. They had to make them into a subordinated caste. You know, the horrors of, of it happened over time, happened with each decision that they made, and, and then ultimately uh, the, the final solution, which came later in the war. And so this is an effort to look at the origins of these hierarchies with an emphasis on the origins of them so that we can somehow learn from them and somehow, and and obviously to make sure that these things never, ever happen again. So thinking about India's caste system and you traveled to India, it's so very different than the 12-year Nazi reign in that it's thousands of years old. So what did you learn about its structures, its permanence in society, and how did that affect the evolution of your thinking on American castes? Well, the, uh, I wanted to understand this because it's such a complex, ancient system uh, that is uh, that ha- that's based upon four main varnas, um, with uh, Brahmins uh, on on the very top, um, and and then a sub uh, subcast within each of the four main varnas, and then there are the outcasts of the uh, of uh, the people at the very very bottom uh, who are the the untouchables. Uh, then there are also uh, an additional group uh, that are uh, essentially exiled in a, in a different kind of way, similar to the way that indigenous people in, in our country are the Adivasi. So there's a very, very complex system uh, for which there are not um, 
in, in any way exact analogs because it is so very complex and it is so ancient. So this is not in any way to suggest that they are the same in any way, but they are. there are points of intersection and um, things that we can learn um, as a result of the ways that that CAT system, um, which has been in place for so, so very long, um, ended up uh, putting its bottom around the people who are on the very bottom, um, using some, some of the mechanisms that it's shocking to me that all three of these systems ended up using. Um, independent of one another, complete, you know, across time, across space, across oceans and continents that would end up using some of the similar mechanisms. And that was one of the things that I, I that actually uh, reinforced this idea that that cast as a phenomenon is something that can be applied if one just understands what cast, you know, is to begin with and the ways that uh, that it um, manifests uh, along these different characteristics I've described. So one of them would be the idea of purity and pollution. Each one of these uh, cultures um, made uh, purity of the dominant caste um, one of the prime signatures of their uh, of their of their uh, hierarchy. Meaning that to protect the purity of the dominant caste became a main focus. Um, to protect the dominant caste from the what's would be known as the pollution, the presumed pollution, by proximity with interaction with those who were deemed uh, beneath them, uh, assigned to the bottom, and um, across these three civilizations, these three cultures, water became this sort of central symbol of purity. Uh, water being, you know, an element of life itself on our planet. Uh, that humans require, and yet in each of these uh, each of these cultures, water became uh, the controlling factor. Could be that, uh, for example, the the uh, uh, Dalit people, the uh, formerly known as Untouchables, could not use the same well. Certainly, could not drink from the same cup. It would be unimaginable. There were so many restrictions. There was restrictions in terms of um, in terms of spacing that that uh, that the lower caste people, and of course, there were many many thousands of subgroups that were considered part of the lower caste, the, the larger lower caste, but that there were some who could not be within 96, 96 paces of someone of a higher caste. So there are very many, many rules and laws and restrictions. But when it comes to water, uh, the Nazis as well restricted um, Jewish citizens from access to waters and pools uh, that might have been uh, you know, near their own homes. So that water became a central uh, feature of uh, manifestation or symbol of purity uh, for the Nazis uh, as well. One of the many, many things, of course, we know that many, many horrific things that the Nazis did, but they took the time even to make a distinction there. And then in our country, which is, again, the focus of this book, uh, water became a, a central a dividing line where um, much of the many beaches were not, uh, African-Americans were not permitted to go to many, many beaches. African-Americans were not permitted into the pools that uh, that uh, that were controlled by or intended for uh, people in what I would call the dominant caste. Um, there are many, many examples of people who actually, uh, it was a matter, it could be a matter of life and death um, in any of these cases, if you were to breach this central principle of caste. There was a case in 1919, um, the, the red summer of 1919, where a young man, an African-American uh, teenager was swimming uh, off of Lake, uh, off, of a, uh, off of a beach in uh, Lake Michigan in Chicago. And he was wading in the water and he waded 
uh, into what was viewed as the white water, invisible line separating uh, uh, white swimmers from black swimmers. And he waded into the white water uh, and he was stoned to death for having done so. And that set off uh, one of the uh, many um, uh, race riots uh, in, uh, in that of that summer uh, in which many, many um, Many, many people uh, perished in that riot, um, and which, it, which itself was a response to uh, the uh, resentments uh, and hostilities facing African-Americans when they arrived from the, the Jim Crow South during the Great Migration. So the idea of water is one of the intersecting, uh, po- the points of intersection that, um, that was characteristic of, of all of these uh, different cultures. Ac- again, across time, across space, not necessarily uh, not even necessarily um, knowing, uh, but just doing this because that became one of the principles uh, that seemed to be so important for maintaining um, the primacy of one group over another. You uh, tell us that Martin Luther King visited India during his quest for civil rights in the United States. We found a an archival clip of him telling that story in 1965 to the Los Angeles World Affairs Council. It's audio, but let's listen, and then I'd like to have you tell us a little bit more. One afternoon, I went down to speak in the southern part of India in a school that was attended by and large by young boys and girls who were the children of former untouchables. And I remember that afternoon that the principal got up to introduce me. And as he came to the end of his introduction, he said, I would like to present to you a fellow untouchable from the United States of America. And for the moment I was peeved, I was shocked that I would be introduced as an untouchable. Pretty soon my mind ran back across to America. I started thinking about the fact that my little children were still judged on the basis of the color of their skin rather than the content of their character. And I had to say to myself, I am an untouchable. And every Negro in the United States is an untouchable. Segregation is evil and sinful because it stigmatizes the segregated as an untouchable in a caste system. Isabel Wilkerson, what is it like listening to that uh, 60 years later? Yeah, I mean, I, I studied uh, and researched uh, that experience that he describes for, for quite a bit in order to write this book and to hear his words, to hear him saying that is just, um, you know, stunning and, and uh, uh, for me to hear. Uh, yes, um, doc, Dr. Martin Luther King himself recognized, came to recognize that um, we in this country um, live under a caste system. Um, that we have inherited this caste system and that it was self-evident to him as well. And it became evident, uh, the connections between India and that ancient system and ours, though newer, carrying the same stigma, stigmatizing uh, phenomenon uh, that has held um, so many people back, in fact, the entire country back, I would say, um, for so long. 
if we're looking for parallels to understand the United States between India and the U.S., uh, can you explain the Dalit, which is the the um, inheritors of the untouchable class after it was outlawed, uh, and form the basis for political representation in India? How much power have they managed to accrue in Indian society, and, and what might that tell us about progress in our own? Well, interestingly enough, you know, the, the parallels continue. I mean, I, one of the things that I often say is people will often ask, why did, does this particular group do this or do that? And I often say, well, what is it that human beings do when they're in a particular circumstance? And so because there are similarities, they're not the same, but there are similarities in the way people are treated, the ways the mechanisms for controlling uh, these groups, that the responses might often, you know, have some similarities as well. And so there has been uh, a, uh, you know, a, a, a president of uh, their system is different from ours. They have a prime minister and a president, but there is there is a Dalit who has risen to the level of president uh, of that country several years ago. Uh, there are Dalits who have managed to get um, uh, you know, education and gone, gone on to professions, as have been the case for African Americans. In fact, um, the the uh, India uh, abolished untouchability um, in the uh, late 1940s, early 1950s, and so that they uh, actually abolished uh, untouchability and uh, outlawed discrimination before uh, the United States actually did in the 1960s. Um, but that does not mean that the laws, that the change in the laws um, uh, leads to uh, changes of heart, changes in behavior, changes in custom that have been in place for so long. I mean, I, I think that, that what we can learn from both countries is that despite the many advancements, there can still be the remnants, the residue, the shadow of the originating uh, hierarchies that have been uh, in place for so long and passed down through the generations that they still can be animating forces in the current day. And that is what um, is, has happened in both countries. I mean, there, there actually was a Dulles, there was a Black Panther Party and there was a Dulles Panther Party afterward. Um, the the, uh, the Dulles uh, uh, people, uh, many of them saw the connections and created a, a Dulles Panther Party. Uh, there have been a call for Dulles Lives Mattering as well as in the you know, Black Lives Matter movement in the United States because of the atrocities that still uh, occur uh, all too frequently, all too frequently and with great horror uh, in India, despite the laws that have been in place. So we, I think in both countries, we can, we have learned that despite the, the many, pro the many uh, indications of progress and uh, despite the laws that might've been changed, um, that there can still be this residue, still be this ongoing unresolved um, challenges because we have not really dealt with what's underlying all of this, which is the underlying uh, structure of hierarchy itself. Uh, you remind us, and we've, many of us have lived through the, the, as you call, the major reckonings with race that the United States has had over its history. In uh, Martin Luther King's era, of course, there was an enormous legislative yardstick for progress, which was the civil rights legislation, which ultimately passed in the mid-60s. When thinking about today in the United States, uh, what, what yardsticks can this society use to measure progress and change? Well, I think that um, I, I'm not an expert on policy, so I don't want to present that. I, I am the uh, 
I'm like the building inspector who has presented uh, the the report. I like the radiologist who's presented the the X-ray. Uh, this is what I'm presenting in in this work. Um, but I would say that uh, that one metric would be the many number the numbers that we're seeing when it comes to uh, people who uh, you know die at the hands of police, um, mass incarceration, uh, the numbers that we're seeing with the the tremendous wealth gap uh, between uh, and again not rich gap but wealth gap meaning assets that uh, a family or a household has accrued and the gap between. Uh, uh, African Americans and and their white counterparts, where the uh, the gap exists uh, regardless of the level the level of education achievement. Uh, the gap exists regardless of uh, the professional standing of the individual. That there is a gap between these groups because of the inherited advantages or disadvantages that were not a part of that that no one necessarily asked for. That you're born to a place in the hierarchy and you did not ask to be born to that place in the hierarchy. But as a result of redlining and uh, and restrictive covenants that uh, that allowed uh, people in the dominant caste to uh, purchase homes with uh, government uh, backed mortgages that were. Uh, that from which African American families were excluded, uh, that the, we have uh, African Americans of today are descended from, or the children or grandchildren of people who had been who had been excluded from the American dream, and the end result is this great wealth gap. Uh, that you know, the, the, uh, owning a home is one of the, the you know most common ways a person that a family builds wealth and builds a legacy for their for their children and grandchildren. And so this has had been denied African Americans uh, for generations, and of course before that enslavement. So the the measures would be the these the measures in which we can uh, can look at how are people faring. Um, how are people faring, even factoring in um, the things that they may be doing to improve themselves, getting an education and and um, and um, hope, hoping to get the job, applying for jobs that are in accord with their education and still not being able to to get ahead. So there, there would be many metrics that we would have to look at, at now. Your text references three milestone dates that give context to the story that you're telling in your book, Cast. And I wanted you to explain more of their significance to our audience. 2022, 2111, and 2042. Let's start with the closest one, 2022. Why is that date important? So 2022 marks the year that the United States will have been an independent nation for as long as enslavement had been in existence. And so what, what is your thinking about that? What, what should people take away from that fact? People should take away the, the idea that there was enslavement uh, for so long that, the, that it actually uh, went on for so long that the United States has been in existence for the same amount of time that there was enslavement. Enslavement lasted for 246 years. It went on for 12 generations. How many greats do you have to add to the word grandparent, you know, to begin to imagine how long enslavement lasted? It lasted from before there was the United States of America and went and then went into the founding, you know, past the founding of the United States and went on for so long that it won't be until 2022 that the United States will have been a nation for as long as enslavement lasted on this soil. And the related date, the 2011 date, African-Americans free as a people for as long as they were enslaved. Tell me more about your thinking on that date. It means that no adult alive today will 
be alive at the point at which African Americans will have been free for as long as they were enslaved. That won't be until 2111. And a date that's that that's how long enslavement lasted. And a date that's that is in our immediate future and frames the latter half of your book is the date 2042. What happens in our society in 2042? 2042 is a projected date at which uh, there would be no majority uh, race group uh, in our country. In other words, the majority uh, race uh, or group in our country who would be white Americans would no longer be in the majority. That's a moment, a change in the demographics that no one alive uh, would even begin to know what that truly means because it's never been a case in our country. In other words, this is a historic demographic change in our country. And it has ramifications for everyone um, because no one has experienced uh, any, any, anything different than what we're all accustomed to. Um, it, it means that we have to uh, you know, reckon with who we are as a country. We need to uh, recognize our uh, connection to uh, to uh, people who are uh, descended from outside of Europe. Uh, it means that we have to um, reach across these artificial boundaries and to be able to find and to see the things that we have in common. You know, being American is the thing that we would say we have in common. What does that mean to be American when the majority is not what it has always has been uh, up until this point? It's a, it's a moment of opportunity if we are willing to see it as that. In uh, the epilogue to Warmth, you quoted President Barack Obama's first inaugural address and called his election a change in the caste script. What were the consequences on America's uh, approach to race in our society of his eight-year presidency? And I might add a more recent event, the selection of Kamala Harris uh, to the Democratic ticket. Well, these are these are tremendous, you know, historic events uh, that uh, that we are that you know historians will be uh, will be studying uh, for for generations to come. Um, this was the first time that someone who was not from a historic dominant group was you know was uh, elected to the White House. Uh, to elected to uh, the presidency, um, there have been uh, there have been. I mean, if you think about just the symbolism of that, there have been um, enslaved people who built the White House. There had been uh, African African Americans who worked, uh, you know, as butlers and servants in the White House. But to have someone come in uh, in this way uh, is just historic. Obviously, um, this was a, a change for the the originating hierarchy of our country, what I call a caste system. And when there are changes in a caste system, uh, there are there are uh, effects that, that occur uh, throughout that system. I mean, I think I, I, I describe our, I have many metaphors in the book, and one of them is the idea of, of uh, the many ways that the word caste is used in our language. And one of the ways that it's used without the E is a cast in a play. And so on that stage, when you have a cast in a play, you have everyone in their assigned positions, a stage right, stage left, foreground, background, and everyone has the, the script of the, the, uh, their lines to speak, uh, the roles that they play, and everyone is accustomed to that as long as everyone stays in their assigned role. 
Um, but when there, if there's a change in that script, or there's something that happens that is that is not expected, then everyone has to figure out what does that mean for them. You know, they have to look back at the script and say, now, now, what is it that we do? And that's what happens when you think about, uh, a, you know, a cat, the cast. Um, you know, something that where there are roles and expectations and assumptions that are, are assigned or accrue to one's role in in a caste system in a hierarchy. And so we, you know, we are we have seen um, with his presidency, we we all saw uh, the pushback and the, and the uh, resistance and the uh, restrictions that were that were placed that um, would would in some ways not be unexpected when you look at it through the lens of caste. Let me move to outcomes in the few minutes that we have left. Um, you write in the book, the goal of this work has not been to resolve all the problems, but to cast, there's the word again, a light onto <laughs> its history, its consequences, and its presence in our everyday lives and express hope for its resolution. But let me think about your metaphors. I thought about them a lot as I was reading them. Either the bones of the body or the, uh, the, in, the, in, the infrastructure of a house, both of those things are fairly impossible to change. So ultimately, is this the, are these metaphors pessimistic that that a caste structure can't be changed? I would not have written it if I thought that it could not be changed, that we could not um, find ways to push past these artificial boundaries. I mean, that's really why I, I wrote it. Um, you know, I, I have yet another metaphor having to do with when you go to the doctor. Um, the doctor, before you can even see the doctor, you're handed this this uh, sheet, you know, these this uh, um, these forms that you're to fill out. And the doctor wants to know before he or she will even see you, the doctor wants to know your history. They want to know not, not just your history, but your parents' history and your grandparents' history. And that is the, the that is because before the doctor will even see you, he or she needs to know your history in order to better diagnose uh, your situation in order to uh, in order to help help you with that situation in order to resolve whatever your your problem may be and that is what I am that's what this uh, work is asking it's asking that we that we look at the history because you cannot fix something if you cannot see it you cannot repair something if you do not know what is what is going on um, you, you you cannot fix what you cannot see and this is asking us to finally see to, to be able to know our history. And when Warmth of the Suns came out, one of the things that I would hear time and time again from people after they read it was, they said, I had no idea. I had no idea. And uh, I heard that from all kinds of people, people from all, all walks of life, people whose lives, in fact, over, intersected with and overlapped with the time period in, in question. And, and yet they had no idea. That means that we have a lot of work to do um, as, as a country to really learn the full history of what has gone before us to better understand what we are dealing with now, what has gone, what has happened before so we can understand what we are dealing with now so that we can work together to try to, you know, to work toward uh, a place of healing uh, these wounds and these divisions, these fissures that we are dealing with now. And we cannot do that if we don't get on the same page about what our actual history has been. So complicated this year by the pandemic, the economic downturn, protests in cities large and small, and heightened partisanship. So uh, is your frame of mind ultimately optimistic about this country's future, or are you concerned about the short term? 
Well, I'm concerned, yes, but I have no choice but to be optimistic because that is why I, I wrote this book. I wrote this book in hopes that uh, those who read it and those who uh, um, take it in with an open mind and a willing heart will be able to see uh, where we have come from and, and what the origins of how we got to where we are. So, yes, I, I am hopeful that if people approach this with an, uh, with an open mind and a willing heart, that um, we will see how very much we all have in common and that we will see be able to reach beyond these artificial barriers and to do this not just for ourselves but for our families for our children um, for our communities for our country and ultimately for the species in the planet because it requires it at this time uh, oprah winfrey selected your book as a, a book club selection also it's noted that she's sending hundreds of copies to public officials across the united states uh, what's the impact of that going to be, do you think? I I don't know. I, I, I can only hope that it will, uh, that it will, you know, uh, illuminate uh, these uh, truths to people who can actually, who are in a position to, to really do something about it. Um, all, of, all of us have a role to play, but the more influence one has, then the greater the responsibility and the greater the calling. So I'm hopeful that that somehow all of this will come together to, to make this a better place for all of us. In our last couple of minutes, you write in the acknowledgments about all the personal interactions you had with readers over the years uh, after the publication of Warmth, people sending you letters and emails. What were they reaching out to you? What did they want? What was the genesis of their connection with you? And are you anticipating this book will have the same sort of personal reaction for readers? Well, it already has. I mean, I, I hear from so, so many people who uh, are, you know, are saying that this is opening their eyes in ways that it, they had never been opened before. Um, you know, you can, you, you know, there, there are people who will, who have said that they are, um, you know, uh, sending it out to everyone that they know, insisting that, that the people that they know and love uh, read it. Um, that was a similar response to the Warmth of the Sons. Warmth of the Sons was very personal, particularly to uh, anyone who had been a, a descendant of the Great Migration, of course, but also people who were descendants of, of immigration from, from other parts of the world. Um, it is, has a, a special place in the hearts of many people because it was a chance to tell their story, um, to hear their story told in a way that it hadn't been before. Um, because we often look at history with a big H, you know, with big, big history. And this is a chance to look at the history, but through the eyes of the people who had lived it from their perspective. And, you know, one of the, um, the, the thing you asked, what are people saying to me? One of the things that um, is so deeply touching to me that, that I hear more often than you would imagine is that people will tell me um, with tears of gratitude that this book, The Warmth of the Sons, was the last book that their mother or their father or their grandmother had read before they passed away. And uh, these are often children or descendants of the Great Migration. And the reason they say that is because um, the, the people who endured this and survived Jim Crow often did not tell their children what they had endured. They did not burden their children with, with what they had experienced. Um, they had experienced these traumas, kind of post-traumatic stress. They didn't speak about it. And, and so uh, this book for, for many people ended up being the, the last book that they read uh, before they passed away. And that allowed them to come to a, a place of, of, of healing, a place of validation for all that they'd gone through. And it, it's just, it just is profoundly, it's a profound honor 
uh, to be told this by the, the, the children of people who, you know, spent their last days and hours with their loved one um, uh, with this book and feeling a sense of gratitude for it. And, and that's one of the highest honors anyone could ever receive. Isabel Wilkerson joining us by Zoom, which has lots of pluses in the age of COVID, but also we've had a few bandwidth issues along the way. I apologize to our viewers for those, but really appreciate the hour that we spent with you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.